You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, Ephesians chapter 2 is where you need to turn, and we've got a lot to do today, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, and I'm going to go ahead and get rolling. Ephesians chapter 2. In 1983, Ronald Reagan made tomorrow, which is the third January in, or the third Monday in January, he made that a holiday celebrating Martin Luther King Jr., And in light of that, I want to begin this sermon with the end of one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches. On August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. took his place on the steps, kind of leading up to the Lincoln Memorial, and ended a speech to over 250,000 people uh, with these words. Even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. And with this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. And this will be the day, this will be the day when all God's children will be able to sing with new meeting, my country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And when this happens, and when we, when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from state and every city, we will be able to speed up the day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentile, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in, sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Now, I think that is a great place for us to start today because that is not a man's dream. That is God's dream. That is not a man's dream. That is God Almighty's dream. It's a dream from God that he sent his son to purchase and sent his spirit to apply. 
That that God is willing to work for that dream. God wants that dream. And and here's the main thing I want to try to get across today. Because God is willing to, to or he wants that and is willing to work for that dream to come to fruition. We as his sons and daughters ought to have a willingness in us and a want in us and and a willingness to work in us for that same dream. Because it's God's dream. It ought to be our dream as the church of Jesus Christ. Like when we're seeing the picture of heaven one day, that's it. The picture of heaven in Revelation 5 is a very diverse group of people, all different, all these different ethnicities and culture who have embraced their differences, able to celebrate their differences and be one in light of their differences under the banner of Jesus. See, the picture of heaven is where all of these differences that we have among all of these different peoples of the earth all get swallowed up in the oneness that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They all get swallowed up right there. That's, that's heaven, and we want more of that heaven to come down to this earth, don't we? See, because God's dream is that, this ought to be our dream. Now, this is where we're going today. So we're in the book of Ephesians, and let me just back up. Like last week, what we allowed Paul to to, to show us in Ephesians is is that the church, the church is the body, the church is the bride, the the church is the family of God. Like Paul makes sure that when we think about Christianity, we do not just think about it in personal terms. He's showing us that you cannot do that. If you belong to Jesus, or if if you're in Christ, you belong to the church. Those two things are tied together. Being in Christ automatically means you belong to the church. And and the church is a a bride that we should all marry. We should give our life to. We should make a covenant with and get in on. That the church is a body that we should lay our life down and serve. The church is a family that we should be deeply embedded into. The church is all of those things. But when you get to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul keeps pressing on this keeps pushing on this. And in Ephesians chapter two, Paul is gonna show us that the church is not just a new family for the sons and daughters of God. That the church is a new family that is very diverse. That's Ephesians chapter two. So go there and here's, I wanna break this passage down into three sections. Ephesians chapter two, verses 11 through 22. There's three sections. And over the top of this passage, if you've got an ESV uh, translation of the Bible, Right above verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, you're going to see this, this, these words, oneness in Christ. That's, that's the point of the passage. This is what Paul is trying to show us. This is the theme. This is the context, oneness in Christ. So we're going to start off, you're going to see something at the beginning of the passage, something at the end of the passage, and something in the middle of the passage. Let's start off with what we see at the beginning. At the beginning of the passage, here, here's the thing that we see, the problem of division. The problem of division. So start in verse 11 with me. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Here's the problem. Verse verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now in these two verses, Paul is walking us into the deep division that existed between Jew and Gentile. So the Jews, if you think of it in terms of the Old Testament, the Jews were the people of God. 
These are the people that God came to and said, you're going to be mine and I'm going to be yours in a special covenantal sort of a way. My promises are going to be yours. You, you can look up to me as God and Father. This is, this is who I am to you Jewish people. Now the Gentiles were all the nations around the people of Israel. So you have Israel, this, this sort of special relationship with God, and you've got the Gentiles that make up all of these nations around them. And between these two groups of people, Israel here, the Jews here, and all of these other nations, there was a deep, deep division. Now, if you look at verses 14 and verses 16, Paul uses the word hostility to describe the division. When that word hostility is being used there to describe the deep division that existed between Jew and Gentile. And that's a good word for it. It was a division that was deep. And it was multi-layered. It was complex. It's not just like you can say, oh, if you'll just do this, then it'll all be okay. It's a complex, deep, multi-layered division. As deep and as divisive as anything that exists between any two groups of people today. It's that sort of complexity and depth. So when you're thinking about this division, it was a social division. The people of Israel were given commands that said, you stay distinct from all of these other nations. Don't let them into your group of people. So it was a social thing. It was a religious um, sort of a, a, of a tension. The, the, the Gentile people were not allowed to worship with the people of Israel. But it was also a racial tension. So, so listen to what one uh, commentator, William Barclay, says about the tension that existed between Jew and Gentile. He said the Jew had, this will be on the screen for you, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. Now, I would call that a pretty deep division, wouldn't you? That's what you would call hostility working itself out between two people. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. And here's an illustration of that. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, the funeral of that Jewish boy was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Okay, so do you see the sort of depth and complexity of the division? Just to say this again, it was as deep and as complex as any division that exists between any groups of people today. It was a massive, you know, deep ravine that existed between these two groups, Jew and Gentile. Now, let's go to the end of the passage. Look at verse 19 and beyond. 19, 20, 21, and 22. At the beginning of the passage, we see the problem of division. At the end of the passage, we see the creation of oneness. Now, look at what we see here in verses 19 and beyond. So then, now this is to the exact same group of people he just said, there is strife and hostility. These people hate each other. Now, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, these two divided groups being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, now, when I read that, my first thought is, 
That's amazing. How do you go from the beginning of this passage, deep division? I mean, just strife is everywhere. People hate everyone. You go from that sort of animosity, hatred that just, it it bleeds all the way down into the core of how they're relating to one another. How do you go from that to the hostility being replaced by oneness? The animosity being replaced by reconciliation? How do you go from that, these two distinct, different, divided people, to Paul saying, no, but here's what you are now. You are now fellow citizens together in the kingdom of God. You you were this, you were divided. You, You did have all of these differences and hurts that kept you apart from one another. But now you're actually members of the same household. You're now like brothers and sisters in the family of God. You're now that. You're now not two distinct people. You're not that any longer. Now now you have been brought together and you are this building that is growing into a temple where the spirit of God is actually dwelling. That's what you are now. I mean, is that not amazing? From beginning to end of this passage, the sort of drastic change that just happened. Now the question becomes, what in the world stands between these two issues? The beginning of the passage, you've got strife, hostility, animosity. The end of the passage, you have oneness. We are a part of the same family. We are living as brothers and sisters in the household of God. How do you go from that to that? What is in between these two things happening? Answer, the explosive power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's in between the two things. So so look at this in verses 13 through 18. Now there's way more in there that I'm gonna be able to get to, so I just wanna give you a 30,000 foot view of it. But I want you to see what the explosive power of the gospel of Jesus Christ produced in these two people who hated each other. These two groups who couldn't stand each other. Look at what it does. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, you have been reconciled to God. You have been brought into the family of God. The the deep division that exists between you and God is now remedied. You you are now in with God. Jesus rescues us from from our enemies of, of sin, death, hell, and we're rescued to, reconciled to God. But then look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. And look at what he did who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two distinct groups of people, so making peace. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The biggest division that exists in in this universe is the division between a holy God and sinful man. That is the biggest division that there is. Sin has created a deep ravine and there are two camps of people, God on one side, humanity on the other. And the Bible uses words like this to describe this sort of a division between these two camps, humanity and God. Hostility, animosity, enemies, 
That, that's the way the Bible describes the, the distinctness, the differentness, the separateness, the hostility that exists between these two, these two entities, God and humanity. And here's the good news of Jesus in a nutshell. God the Father sent God the Son behind enemy lines into the war zone. He lived a perfect life in our place. He died on the cross for our sin, buried three days in a tomb, rose from the dead on the third day so that the animosity could be squelched, so that a bridge across this deep divide could be made, so that we could actually be reconciled to God. That is the good news of Jesus for you personally. It affects your relationship with God. You're no longer an alien. You're no longer on the other side of the divide. Because of Jesus, you're brought across the divide and you are now placed in the family of God. You can now look at God and know, God is no longer enemy, God is my father. That's the great news of the gospel. Okay, now hear what I'm about to say. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not just affect your relationship with God. Paul is showing us in Ephesians 2, the gospel of Jesus Christ affects everything. Everything. It affects every relationship that you have. See, when you get saved, when the gospel of Jesus Christ brings you across that great divide and reconciles you to God, when that happens, your heart, it's like a nuclear explosion goes off in your heart. Where this chain reaction breaks out that doesn't just affect how you're relating to God, but now this chain reaction happens where it, it affects every relationship. That, that, that nuclear explosion that happens in your heart when God rescues and redeems you is so powerful. The chain reaction has so much momentum behind it that Paul is saying it rips down the dividing wall that existed between Jew and Gentile. It actually made these two distinct groups of people that hated one another, it actually has the power to make them one. It actually does make them one. That's what he's saying here. See, this passage points us to, to the point of the gospel. See, Jesus saves us. Jesus, Jesus came, lived, died, rose from the dead, not just to save a person in this culture and ethnicity and a person from this culture and ethnicity so they could still stay in their cultures and have like two tracks to God. That's not what he came and died for. Jesus came and died to make these two very distinct people, different people, even when there's animosity between these two groups of people. He came and died to make these two groups of people one in him. That's the point of the gospel. He did not die for us to stay distinct people, but he died so that we could embrace our distinctness and become one people. One new man in place of the two very distinct people groups. That is why Jesus came to die. That's the point of the gospel. But it doesn't just show us the point of the gospel. It shows us the power of the gospel. That there is one power strong enough in this universe to take two very distinct sorts of people and to make them one. And Paul's showing us what that one and only power in the universe is. It's the nuclear power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that has like the gravity to it, the sort of mass to it that can take all of our differences, allow us to celebrate those differences as we become one and embrace unity together. That is the only thing in the universe that can do that. Listen to how one author says this. He says it like this. The bloodline of Jesus Christ is deeper than the bloodlines of race. Oh, that we would get that. 
The bloodline of Jesus Christ is deeper than the bloodlines of race. The death and resurrection of the Son of God for sinners is the only sufficient power to bring the bloodlines of race into a single bloodline of the cross. That's what Paul is showing us. See, the cross is the great leveler. The the cross is what shows us that your color, your culture gains you nothing before God. But the only thing we gain before God is what we have in Jesus. It's what shows us that. It's the nuclear power that, that, that has like the ability to draw all of these distinct and different color and classes of people all into oneness. It's the only thing on the planet that can do that. Now, let me clarify before we go any further. We're about to apply this. But before we go any further, let me, let me clarify the heart of what Ephesians 2 is showing us. Ephesians 2 is not saying a church growing in racial diversity or any other sort of diversity is the gospel. It is not the gospel. The gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What Ephesians 2 is showing us that distinct people, different people, They just do things, think things differently from one another. Them embracing oneness and coming together is a direct implication of the gospel. It is tied to the good news of Jesus. It flows directly from the good news of Jesus. That Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that distinct people could celebrate their distinctness and embrace oneness together. It's showing us that that it flows directly out of the good news of Jesus. So we're gonna spend the rest of our time applying that reality to our current situation. And I need to preface with a couple of things. One is when we talk about the effects of, of Ephesians 2 as it plays out in a body of Christ, that would mean that we are willing and we are pursuing diversity in every area. Age, that we don't want to be one age here. We want all the ages to worship here among our church family. Socioeconomic sort of situations, we want everyone to be invited and welcomed in this church. It also means race. And we are pursuing, we want it to be an all race thing, not a one or two race thing, but an every race thing. But for the purposes of this sermon, as I apply it, I'm going to apply it to a very specific issue of race And I'm going to apply it to a very particular issue within the category of race. And it's for a a couple of distinct reasons. One is the the history of our country, one. And and two, it's the depth of divide that exists because of that history. That I want to apply it to the black and white divide that exists in our country. So we're going to take this and apply it in particular to that. Now the second preface uh, preface is to my um, Anglo friends in the room. So if you are a white American, I want you to look at me right now. The first thing we have to know in addressing this issue is that we exist in the majority culture. And that means certain things for us. And one of the things it means is that we are likely very ignorant to the issues of race and racism. Because we don't have to be aware of these things because we're in the majority culture. So it's very important that you see, you see out of a grid that is majority culture lens. That's the lens you see the world from. So we're very prone to make just really dumb statements. I'll just give you one of those. Why can't we all just be colorblind? You know why you're saying that? Because you're in the majority culture and you can afford to be colorblind. That's the reason. 
And just on a different note, that's a theologically uninformed statement. God is not colorblind. God created the different ethnicities on the planet. And if you look down the road in in Revelation 5, what you're going to find is in heaven, John says this, I look at heaven and I see various ethnicities, every nation, tongue, and tribe, and they're all worshiping Jesus together. So God is not a colored blind God. And we should not be a colored blind people. The church should not be a colored blind place. The church should be a place that recognizes the differences, celebrates those, and works for oneness in the midst of them. That should be the church. So, okay, now, majority culture, Anglo-Americans in the room, look at me here. The first thing we have to realize as we're thinking about this issue is we are ignorant to most of the issues around it. That there is depth to it that most of us don't know. There's complexity to it that most of us don't know. And the first evidence of grace in your heart and my heart as a person in the majority culture, listen to this, is for us to humble ourselves and to be willing to learn. So can I invite you into that humility with me? I want to be that too. Can I invite you into humility and into a willingness to learn what we don't know? We need that. Okay, so with that said, let me jump in. The the reason I want to address the black and white issue is because there are historic roots that make this divide really deep and really difficult to deal with. So as if, for instance, when we're talking racism and prejudice, it is in our country's history. I wish it wasn't so, but it is. Slavery, racial injustice, it's one of the black eyes on American history. As if, if for instance, in that, consider the infamous Dred Scott decision in 1857 that, that anyone who looks at American history is basically, everyone is agreeing, this is the worst decision that the Supreme Court has ever made. Here's what it went on to say. The Dred Scott decision of 1857. It ruled that black people were not U.S. citizens, but instead were property to be bought, sold, or killed at the whims of their masters. That is our history. That's a part of the American history. And and when we're talking racism and prejudice, it's not just a back in the ancient history kind of realm of things. It's in our recent history. So let me just give a, a few examples of this. Um, Let's first talk segregation. My dad is 66 years old. When he was nine years old, he was in the fourth grade, um, when when his school that he was going to experienced desegregation. Now, let me read the words of one pastor who experienced the same thing in a school when that went went on. Listen to how he described. This is a, a white pastor describing that issue of segregation. He says it this way. I think it's on the screen for you, maybe. If not, just listen here. He said, segregation was the world we grew up in. Legally mandated separation of races at all kinds of levels. Separate schools, separate motels, separate restrooms, separate swimming pools, separate drinking fountains. How could you more clearly communicate the lie that being black was like a disease? It had an unbelievably oppressive and demeaning effect on the African-American community. Now listen to this for those in the white culture. He goes on to say this. And it had a deadening and defiling effect on the conscience of white America. It was disastrous for everyone. Everyone. It was terrible for everyone. It had, the effects were much different. But I want you to know, if you're a white person in this room, that 
issue of segregation has an effect on you today. Because here's the truth for all of us in the room. If you're, let's say, 55 and older, here's what it means. You experienced segregation. You lived in desegregation. But if you're in my sort of an age bracket, let's just say 20 to 40, it means that you lived in the shadows of it. And that has an effect on you that you don't even know exists. But that has a, a deadening effect into this issue that, that is almost imperceptible to us. Now, thankfully, on May 17th, 1954, the Supreme Court decided that the case called Brown versus Board of Education. It declared that state-imposed segregation in public schools was a violation of the 14th Amendment. Now, Selah on that for a second. That means that roughly, roughly 60 years ago, our Constitution said we should segregate based solely on race. Not like That feels like that has to be 300 years ago when I think about it personally. But it's not 300 years ago. It's 60 years ago that we were living in a country whose Constitution said that. Is that not crazy? Let's get another issue of recent history. So, you know, when it, when it comes to, to recent history, let's say that's 45 years, let's bring it even a, a step closer like really recent history. Let me give you a couple examples of the really recent history. Um, this is how one guy described this, this event, this moment. On June 7th, 1998, outside Jasper, Texas, we're talking 1998. That's the year I graduated high school. Some of you are like, dang, you're young. Yes, that's true. 1998, the year I graduated high school. Listen, listen to... to this guy describe it. On June 7th, 1998, outside Jasper, Texas, James Bird, a 49-year-old African-American, was beaten and chained by his ankles to the back of a pickup truck and dragged two miles until his head ripped off. The perpetrators had racist tattoos, one of them depicting an African-American man hanging from a tree. Many things have changed in the last 40, 50, 60 years, but in some deep th ways, things have not changed. There's still plenty of hate. Let's take it to another recent issue. Let's take interracial marriage. As late as 1958, okay, so we're talking like 50, 60 years ago. As late as 1958, only 4% of white Americans approved of interracial marriage. 4% said that is wrong, to, or, you know, all but 4% said that is wrong to do. 96% said that. that. That is wrong for that to go down. Now, in our recent history, it's not just that it was frowned upon, but that it was illegal. This is recent history. Let me just give you the, the illustrations here. Interracial marriage was against the law in 16 states in 1967 when the Loving versus Virginia Supreme Court decision struck down those laws. Not until, listen to this, 1998, I'm a senior in high school again. Not until 1998 did South Carolina remove from their state constitution language that prohibited marriage of a white person with a Negro or mulatto of a per, or a person who shall have one-eighth or more Negro blood. 1998, that still existed in the state constitution of South Carolina. The legislature uh, in Alabama took until the year 2000 to, I'm a sophomore in college now, to remove from the state constitution Article 4, Section 102, which said this, 
the legislature shall never pass any law to authorize or legalize any marriage between a white person and a Negro or a descendant of a Negro. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? That is ridiculous. If we are not a people who can celebrate whatever combination of black, brown, and white who get together and marry, if we can't celebrate that, we need to call that what it is. That is deep-seated prejudice. And to call it any other name is wrong. It is deep-seated prejudice. Now, unless you have been, and let's just kind of take it into like the present day right now, unless you have been under a rock for the last three or four months, you have seen that racial strife has not gone away. That racial strife is there. It's present right now in our country. It is alive, it's brewing. Typically it's simmering one step under the surface and it takes one moment to rip the scab off and to allow everything that's, that's infected inside to come out. That is right now where we live right now in this country. Now, let's be fair here. When we're talking about prejudice, prejudice is no respecter of persons or color. It's not just a white to black or a white to brown. It's brown to black, black to white, black to... I mean, it's everywhere. It's across every divide. It exists everywhere you go. So Church of Jesus Christ, here's the issue that we're getting at here. Yes, it's everywhere. And yes, it's here. In the Church of Jesus Christ, it's here. And it is far past time for the church of Jesus Christ to stop running from itself in this area and finally to face itself in this area. And when we face ourselves, here's what we're going to find in you and me and all of us, that there is prejudice that exists. And, and can I just invite us all into this? Here is a great opportunity from God gifted to you and I to, to face ourselves and to allow the healing balm of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to change us. Because the church is in need of great change in this area. Now, I want you to look at me very closely because the next thing I'm gonna say is one of the major points that I want you to hear this morning. Racial strife is a problem in our country. Can we all agree it's a problem? Racial strife is a problem in our country. Why? Racial strife is a problem in our country because racial reconciliation has not been a priority in the church. Racial strife is a problem in our country because the church of Jesus Christ has not faced itself in this issue and allowed the good news of Jesus to change us. That's why racial strife exists on a, on a country-wide national level. See, what, what happens on a country kind of nationwide level is everyone wants to say it's a governmental problem. So if we'll just get personal responsibility over here and change this government structure over there, then it'll be solved. It won't be solved by a policy. It won't even be solved by like personal responsibility in one section of the community. That's not where the answer is. The only answer to this division is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if the church does not recognize that, if the church does not pursue that, if the church doesn't, doesn't face themselves in this area, there is no hope for that divide to be bridged. No hope. L listen to how um, African-American pastor Tony Evans describes this. He says it this way. I think it's on the screen for you. 
He says, the reason we haven't solved the race problem in America after hundreds of years is that people apart from God are trying to create unity. People apart from God are saying, no, what we need is this. What we need is this. If we can just get this policy, if we can just do that thing, then it'll be solved. No, it won't. So so he goes on to say, the problem is that for hundreds of years, people apart from God are trying to create unity while, listen to this, people under God who already have unity are not living out the unity we possess. That's the issue. People apart from God are trying to solve it. People that, that already have unity because of Jesus are not going after it. They're not pushing into it. They're not pursuing it. The result of both of these conditions is disastrous for America. Our failure to find cultural unity as a nation is directly related to the church's failure to preserve our spiritual unity. In so doing, we have limited the degree to which the healing balm of, our, of God's grace will flow freely from us and then into our communities and ultimately throughout our land. Do you see that? The problem of racial strife in our country is a church problem that we have not faced ourselves in this issue. And if you need like evidence of that, just look at our churches. We all look exactly alike in them. All churches do. Martin Luther King Jr. said this 50 years ago, and it's still true today. He said this, we must face the sad fact that at the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning, when we stand to sing, we stand in the most segregated hour in America. And the most segregated school is Sunday school. So people who kind of look at churches, they use the 80-20 rule to kind of get at this, like how to measure diversity. So a diverse church is a church that doesn't have any one population, any one ethnicity that is more than 80% of that church's uh, body. And if we use that sort of a look at diversity in the church, that 80-20 thing, no no culture, more than 80% of of the church family. 8% of churches, this is all stripes, everything that calls themselves a church in America, 8% of the churches would qualify under that view of diversity. 8%. Now, if we shrink that down to what I would call like the evangelical, Jesus-loving churches, like those those churches, it gets down to 2.5%. Two and a half out of 100 have gotten to 80% in diversity. Like no one culture being more than 80%. Two and a half out of five. See, we have not faced ourselves in this issue. And the truth is, let's just be honest, most churches don't care. Most, most Christians, listen, don't care about it. And that is a travesty. That is a stiff arming what the gospel should be producing among the people of God. See, when, when it comes down to the, to the black-white divide in America, the issues are so deep and complex. If you want to give simplistic answers, you're crazy. It just shows you don't understand them. They are so deep and, and so complex. But under all of the complexity, under all the layers, lies this. The transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when, okay, now, now think about it. That means the only hope for this issue to be solved The only way it's ever going to be solved is for the gospel of Jesus Christ to come and and bring itself to bear on this issue. 
The only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ working through the church of Jesus Christ. And when the church of Jesus Christ pulls back from it, when it will not face itself in this issue, when it will not pursue this issue, the church of Jesus Christ is pulling back the one thing, the gospel, the, the one healing balm that can actually address this issue. And that's what the church has historically done in America. Kept the healing power of the gospel away from this. And that's a travesty. I, I love what uh, Tony Evans goes on to say. He says, the church is the only authentic, cross-racial, cross-cultural, and cross-generational basis for oneness in existence. It's the only way that will ever happen is the gospel of Jesus Christ working through the people of God. To make a place where all these different ages, all these different socioeconomic sort of situations, all these different ethnicities can gather in one place, celebrate their distinctiveness as they embrace oneness. That's the only basis for that that there is in the universe. And Stonegate, I want you to, to, to hear me here. And I just want you to look at me right in the eye when we say this. I am praying that we would be a people who will not run from ourselves but face ourselves here. And that God in his grace would start to plant in us a desire to see Ephesians 2, the power of the gospel, not just transform our relationship with God, but our relationship with various ethnicities, with people who are different than us. That we would have a deep desire to see the gospel of Jesus flaunted as that goes on that God would put in you a deep desire to see reconciliation where there is no peace. For, for a deep desire in you to see, see shalom happen, heaven come down to earth where it so desperately needs to bring that shalom and that peace to it. That God would put in us a burning desire to see that happen. I mean, I'm praying that for you. I'm praying that for me, that we would not stiff arm the implication of the gospel that says two distinct people can celebrate their distinctness as they celebrate oneness. That we would be a people who would press into that, who would want that, who would deeply desire that. Listen, because God deeply desires it. Not because a person does, but because God deeply desires this. Because this is what God is doing. Because this is the dream that God has. This is what God is about so that we would be about this sort of work. Now, here's what I wanna do next. That's the theological underpinnings of this. This is why we need to be about this because God is about it. That's Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. But let me give you two practical reasons why we need to be about this work. Here's practical reason number one. I want you to consider for a second the changing landscape in our country and our community. So let's start with a zoomed out uh, country kind of view of this. So I've got some statistics I'm gonna throw up on the screen for you that I'd like for you to consider. Today, right now in America, minorities make up roughly one third of the US population. Okay, that's about 30%. And that's, that 30% is expected to pass 50% by the year 2042. So I just want you to get a sense of there is a changing dynamic, a changing landscape to our country. By 2023, that's eight years from now, I think, if I'm doing my math right. By 2023, minorities will compromise more than half of all children in the United States. Okay, we seeing that? By 20, eight years from now, minority children will represent half of all children right now in, you know, in America. Next one. 
The Hispanic population is projected to triple from 46 million to 132 million by 2050. So Hispanics are going to move from roughly 15% of the total population to roughly 30%. The the African-American population is projected to increase from 41 million to 65 million by 2050. Okay, that's the national landscape. It is changing. We're becoming more and more a very diverse country. Now, let me make it more personal. Let's boil this down to like our area in particular, local level. And I want you to see this uh, map on the screen. A guy in Virginia did a research project that is just, I mean, it's stunning. It's crazy. Um, He mapped the population of the United States in 2010, and he mapped every person by putting a dot where they live. And that dot is the color of ethnicity. So in this graph, blue is for um, Anglo, white people. Uh, Green is for for, uh, black people. Uh, Orange is for Hispanic people. And brown is kind of for everything else. And red is Asian. So brown is everything else then. So I just want you to take a look, and I just want to draw your attention to our area for a moment. I zoomed in on our area. The, the circle down here is Midlothian. Now, it's hard for you to see. I'll send a link uh, on the city uh, to this this week. But it's hard for you to see, but Midlothian has a lot of white dots in it. I'm sorry, a, a blue dots in it. It has a, a lot of blue dots make up the city of Midlothian right now. But I just want you to see up to 87 up, six, or up, uh, you know, up 27 and then up 360. And then on the other side, this little vein that goes up 67, I just want you to see what the implications are for our area. Midlothian is about to have a lot of green and orange dots added to it. We are about to become a very diverse area. That's just going to be an inevitability. That is going to happen. Now, I want you to look at me right in the eye because that's going to present for us the pressing question that's happening in your heart. So I want you to look at me right here. When you see that and recognize the changing landscape of our country and our community, either one of two things begins to happen in you. Number one, this could be it. You could become very threatened by that. That could be very destabilizing to your little kingdom. Or you could look at that and think this, that unlocks incredible potential for the kingdom of God. That that presents an opportunity to God's people right here in Midlothian to see something incredible happen. God is providentially making us a diverse area so that we as the church can no longer run from this, but can face ourselves in this and actually pursue oneness in the midst of our diversity. And I'm praying that God more and more would help us all in the room feel that. Not destabilized and threatened, but what a unique privilege God is giving you and I and this particular church family to take our little role, the little thing that God's gonna give us is this little church and to press this issue forward. Man, God's giving us that opportunity. I mean, I'm praying that more and more there would be an excitement, a genuine excitement that we get to be a part of that, that God is doing that for us, for this church family. Now, here's the second practical implication that I want to just throw out to you. Practical reason why, as a church family, this is important to us. Embracing oneness helps all of us see more of Jesus. Now, just say a on this for a second and think about this. All the ethnicities that make up 
what is this world, did not happen by chance, but by the design of God. God is behind that. God made it that way. It's like that because God wanted it to be like that. Let me give you a picture of why I think God wanted it to be like that. I want you to consider an auditorium, a massive auditorium. And all the ethnicities that are the sons and daughters of God, every nation, tongue, and tribe, are packed into this auditorium. And we're seated by ethnicity, by our cultures. So in this section, we've got this culture. This section, we've got that culture. This section, we've got this one. That section, we've got that one. So, so we're in this auditorium, seated by ethnicity, and we're all looking at the stage And on the stage, we're seeing the drama of history unfold that culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and will one day finish when Jesus comes back for his bride, the church. We're all seeing that drama on the stage. But hear this. No one sees the depth and the beauty of all of it because we're all looking from a particular point of view. We've all got one perspective on the drama. And the richness and depth of the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be taken in. It is insufficient to get all of that richness and depth from one point of view. But consider what happens when we say, you know what? This ethnicity is welcome to, to worship with us. All of a sudden, we're celebrating the differences. And all of a sudden, we get to step over into this section. And we get to see the depth and richness from their point of view. And then we get to step over into this section and see the richness and depth of of all that God is for us in Jesus from this point of view. And do you see what happens over time when we celebrate our differences as we embrace oneness? Then all of us are benefiting. All of us are growing in the depth and the richness that we are seeing in the person and work of Jesus. That's what's at stake for you and I. It's not just that we are flaunting and showing the power of the gospel to a watching world. It's that there's something in this for all of us. We're getting to see the depth and the richness of Jesus more and more and more as we embrace oneness together. Now, lastly, the last thing I want to do is just give you some practical kind of steps forward in this. What are some steps forward that as a church family we we can take here? So let me just give you a few, and we're going to kind of try to land the plane pretty quickly here. Number one, I've got four of these, by the way. First of all, I think this passage tells us the first one. In Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, Paul says, remember. It's the only command in this passage. It's the only command in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul says, remember. I think this is the first step that we all have to be committed to. Let's remember the good news of Jesus. If our hearts are ever going to be softened to and changed in this area, It's not going to come by more willpower for us. It's going to come by the gospel of Jesus Christ soaking deeper and deeper into our hearts. If we don't have that happen, this is never going to happen. Like the fruit of the gospel of of racial reconciliation and racial harmony and these different people celebrating their differences as they embrace oneness, that can only happen as the people of God celebrate and remember the good news of Jesus. So let's be a people who are remembering the gospel, living the gospel, thinking about the gospel, celebrating the gospel, savoring the gospel, soaking in the gospel. Let's be those sort of people. Secondly, let's be a people who pray for this. This will not happen because of our great strategy. It will not happen because you're awesome. It will only happen if the spirit of God comes in this place and does an extraordinary work. So we need to be praying for that. 
for God to come into this place and do an extraordinary work to make this possible for this group of people. So will you just, I want to invite you, will you please pray for this in particular for our church family? Will you join us in praying for this? Will you make this one of the ways that you emphasize prayer for, for this church family? And you know, before we move past that, I, I think it's worth celebrating what God has already done in our church family. That we have over the last few years grown by leaps and bounds in ethnic diversity. Really in diversity in all ways, but ethnic diversity in particular. God has been so kind to us. Valentine has been such a great help. God has blessed the, blessed the labor that he has put in. And God is growing fruit there and doing wonderful things there. So let's be people who pray for this. Thirdly, let's pursue this corporately. It's gonna take pursuit. We're not going to stumble into this. So we're gonna have to pursue this corporately as a body. And I'll just tell you two ways that that fleshes itself out. As we think about the the corporate kind of pursuit of this, one way is that it affects staff. That if we wanna be an ethnically diverse group of people here, a, a church family, if we want that among our church, that means it's gotta be represented in our staff and our leadership. So that's one of the ways that we're thinking. And I would invite you to be praying that God would give us those sort of people along the way. So it affects staffing. It also affects style. And if if you're an African-American in the room, you're like, yeah, it should affect style. (laughs) Big time. And it should. So we're going to continue. We have been wrestling and we're going to continue to wrestle through. What does this mean for how we sing to God, adore God, celebrate the goodness of God? What does it mean for the way that we set up our services? We have been. We'll continue to wrestle through that. Now that leads us directly into what I can perceive as a potential objection of what about my preferences? Because see, if, if we want to embrace oneness, by nature, embracing oneness means that we are all going to die to a lot of our preferences. That's a part of it. If you want oneness, if you want to embrace oneness, it means that everybody who is embracing oneness has to celebrate their differences as we die to a lot of our preferences so we can do our differences together. That's what it means for all of us. Now, I, I just want to anticipate this objection again of, but no, I, I, I want to be in a place where I can have my preferences. So, so what would I say to that? I want, I want you to hear what I would say to it. My answer is really simple to this question. We all have to die to our preferences, and here's the reason. It's really simple. Because God has asked us to marry not just a church family, but a diverse church family. And if God has asked us to marry a diverse church family, it means that no one can have all of their preferences. We're too different to have everyone have all of their preferences. It means that we all have to die to many of our preferences so oneness can be had. Let's just tease out the illustration of marriage. Can you imagine a guy who stands up at the altar, um, a pastor reads his vows and the guy says, I do. But then he says, hold on, before I say I do, I want you to know, looks at his wife, I want you to know, my preferences are going to win the day. I don't really care what you want. I want what I want. So my preferences are always gonna, I don't really care about what you want. My preferences are going to win. Can you imagine a guy saying that? I mean, that marriage is done before it starts, isn't it? And that is exactly the way many of us approach the church. We, we, we approach our diverse new bride, and as we're marrying it, we say this, I don't care what you want, give me what I want. And we can't do that. If you want to marry the bride of Christ that is diverse, it means that we all have to die to our preferences to embrace oneness. Now, can I just have a moment with, our, with our, all minorities in the room? I want to look at you for a moment and just say this. I know that you being here has meant you have died to almost all of your preferences. And I want to, like, from me to you, say thank you for that. 
Thank you so much for being willing to do that. Be patient with us. We're working on it. We're trying. We're trying to figure it out. And, and I, want, I want you to know this. Every minority in the room, I want you to hear me say this. We need your help if we're ever going to get there. If we want to be a place that's actually going to flaunt the diversity and oneness that the gospel provides, we, we really, really need your patience and your help to do it. So that's on a corporate level. Now, let me finish by applying it to a personal level, that we also have to pursue this personally. That means there's gonna be an intentionality about it, not just corporately for our church, but personally. You have to, I have to. We all have to pursue this intentionally. And here's the, why, the reason I'm saying we have to pursue it. We have to be intentional about it. Gravity, the old sinful part of us, gravity, that little part of us, it's always going to pull us to sameness. If you just like, not intentionally, you're just gonna live your life out. You are going to have a gravitational pull in your life that pulls you to people just like you, who look like you, think like you, believe like you, vote like you, do everything like you. You're gonna gravitate there. It's the path of least resistance. And unless you are intentional about saying no to that path, you are never going to embrace diversity on a personal level. So it takes a level of intentionality from not just us corporately, from but like us on the ground personally, every one of us in the room. So let me give you three ways I think this can play out for us personally. Number one, that we pursue diversity at our dinner tables. The goal of our church family, when we think about embracing oneness as a church, our goal is not just that we would have a worship service that embraces oneness, but that we would be a people who have dinner tables that embrace oneness. You see what the difference in that is? I mean, the cowboys do part one, a gathering. But to have diversified dinner tables means that you have across the dinner table friendships with people who don't look like you, think like you, probably vote like you, and a whole host of other things not like you. It means that your friendships, like who you hang with, who you're doing life with is diverse. And I'm asking you to intentionally pursue that. I'm asking you to prioritize diversity among your group of friends. To, to go about intentionally pursuing that. Um, I love how one African-American pastor friend of mine, he was addressing me and a group of pastors, uh, black, white, Hispanic, all of us out there. And, and he made this comment. He said, and I think this is the heart of what I'm trying to say. He said, if your name's Timmy, you need to get to know a Maurice. And if your name's Maurice, you need to get to know a Timmy. That's what I'm saying, that we need to be intentional about making friendships with diversity in mind. And listen, I'm not saying this has to be the number one emphasis of your life. I'm not saying it has to be the number one. I am saying this though, I'm asking you to make it an emphasis of your life, that you would, you would pursue it like that. Here's the second thing. So first is let's, let's pursue diversity at our dinner table. Secondly, let's be welcoming in our gatherings. When you get together here on a Sunday morning, when you get together in your home groups, when you're around the dinner table, that you are intentionally welcoming. You are overtly welcoming. And listen, it takes intentionality and it takes overtness to how you welcome to do this rightly. Let me give you an illustration of this. And I want you to be, um, I, I think this is helpful for everyone that's sitting here, but I especially want my white friends to listen to the story I'm about to tell. I'm one of our families. I love the family to death. They've now become covenant members. It's an African-American family. It's just, I love them. They're, they're awesome. The first time, you know, they just came to Stonegate. The first time they showed up at a home group, here was the moment that happened for them. 
um, it came time in a home group where they were going to go uh, do the discussion part in the living room. So they were kind of one of the first ones into the living room, and they sat down on the couch. So he and his wife sat down. Now, okay, let me just take a step back, and I want to give you my mental thinking about two people on a couch when Laura and I are going to go try to find a place in the living room. If two people are on the couch and Laura and I are trying to find a seat, I'm thinking this, I ain't sitting on the couch. If I sit on the couch that's really made for three at most, we all, there's no personal boundaries on a couch. You all just kind of sink down into the middle. Like I know my legs are about to be rubbing on somebody else's legs if I sit down on that couch. So you see the picture? That's what I'm thinking. So this, this home group, it kind of plays out. It, it goes on and no one sits down by this couple on the couch. Now I want you to see what people think leaving. If that is a room that is full of one ethnicity, everybody leaves that room thinking nobody sat on the couch, no big deal. But because it was an African-American couple in a room full of, of Anglo people, here's what they left thinking. There's obviously a racial issue going on here. Now that dynamic right there is informative for all of us in the room on every part of this thing. It, 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 you can see that there are grids in place. And if we're gonna be a place that embraces diversity as a church family, you know, out here, and in particular down here, like in home groups, all, we've gotta be overt in the way we're welcoming. If, maybe I say it this way. If we're neutral in the way that we welcome, if we're neutral in the way that we pursue, if we're neutral in it, chances are it is going to be translated as not friendly. You see that? That grid's in place. So we've got we've to make sure we are overt in that, that we go the extra mile, that we do everything we can to break through whatever grids are there so that we can embrace oneness. So we need to be overt in the way we go about that. And then lastly, let's be humble and ready to listen. Can we all do that? Be humble and ready to listen. Can we all recognize that there's a lot that we all need to learn in this? All of us need to learn. All of us need to repent. All of us need to work through the implications of the gospel in our heart in particular. We all need to be humble and we all need to be ready to learn in this. And I'm gonna end by this quote from uh, Tony Evans. He says it this way. Our racial divide is a disease. Amen to that, I agree. Over the... Over, over-the-counter human remedies won't fix the disease. They merely mask the symptoms for a season. What we need is a prescription from the creator to destroy the, this cancer before it destroys us. And it is my contention that if the church can ever get this issue of oneness right, then we can help America to finally become the one nation under God that we declare ourselves to be. When we get it right in the church house is when we can then spread it to the White House and beyond. Amen to that. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press any of the things that would be helpful and to wipe away the things that were just foolish today and not helpful. And this is a wonderful time to be able to face yourself. I think there are just so many of us that we're just so apathetic when it comes to this area. We just don't feel the way God would feel about this. And I'm just praying that more and more that would begin to change. There would be deep desires planted in us to see oneness embraced. 
And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, there's never been a point where you have stepped across the line of faith. Here's the great news that Ephesians 2 shows us today, that you can have the deepest division in your life, the one between you and God, you can have that solved today. The remedy is the person and work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And when you turn from your sin and you throw your life upon Jesus, the division goes away. You're then reconciled into the family of God. You become an adopted son or daughter of God. That's available to you right now in this moment. And if that's never happened, I just want to invite that. I mean, right now in your chair, you can hold up your arms and say, God, please save me. I'm coming with the empty hands of faith, trusting Jesus to make me right with you. And in this moment right now, God will do just that. And if that's you this morning, if you'll grab that card under your seat, and if you'll fill that out, there's a little box. You can check it. It's got like establishing a relationship with Jesus there. And that would give us a chance to follow up with you, to celebrate with you this week on that. We'd love the opportunity to do that. And so, Father, will you help us? God, would you help us in this area? God, will you give us a want for it? God, would you plant deep desires that would be reflective of yours for racial harmony, for diversity, for a place that can celebrate all the distinctiveness, all the differences as we embrace the unity that is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And God, we know that's going to take you doing an extraordinary thing here. And God, we pray that you might be gracious enough to do that for us. And it's in your good name that we pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.